Support for WRFA is brought to you in part by the United Ways of Chautauqua County. United Way is a nonprofit organization that mobilizes the community to help every person and family improve their lives. Donations to the United Way stay 100% locally in our community and get invested in more than 40 community-based programs. These programs help students achieve academic success, families to be self-sufficient and financially stable, and vulnerable households to get their basic and emergency needs met. The United Ways of Chautauqua County, proud supporters of community radio in Jamestown, New York. To learn more, visit uascc.org or call 716-483-1561. Hello, you're listening to Community Matters for Thursday, March 16th. I'm Julia Cisla-Hanley. Coming up on today's program, we'll hear the presentation of the proposed 2023-24 Jamestown Public School Budget. A federal program that helps local health centers is being threatened with cuts by New York State. And the second annual Chautauqua Book Read is underway. That's all coming up on today's program in a moment. Jamestown Public School officials presented their preliminary 2023-24 budget to the Jamestown School Board on Tuesday, March 14th. Superintendent Dr. Kevin Whitaker opens the dialogue, followed by a presentation by District Budget and Finance Director Brittany Spry. This is our very first look at a preliminary budget for 23-24, and Brittany has prepared a wonderful overview of the process. And since it's a workshop, it's a lot less formal, so feel free to interject or ask questions as we go along or um, um, discuss your brainstormed ideas or any of your concerns that you may have as we walk through this. You'll see um, that there will be some attention paid to future capital projects, some attention paid to our literacy and AIS in English, ELA, and math and uh, some other things uh, as it pertains to maintaining a 0% tax increase over the course of the next several years. So with that said, Brittany, it's all yours. All right, so we will go ahead and get started. So welcome to the first look at the 23-24 budget. This is a draft for purposes of discussion and direction. Um, We are still building the budget, so while this is a pretty decent look at it, it is still a work in progress, so there will maybe some changes as we move through the next um, month towards adopting a final budget. So tonight we're going to start by looking at estimated revenue. Currently that is based off of the executive budget proposal. Um, We're going to move in to look at 2023-2024 proposed expenditures. We'll break that down um, through the three-part budget. We'll look at capital, program, and then the administrative budget. And then we will finish out this evening while looking to the future and talking about what a five-year forecast may look like and our uh, take a, a current look at what our reserve fund levels look like. So starting with revenue, um, this information, like I said, is based off of the executive budget proposal. We are, ex- or the one house proposals are starting to be shared this week, so we should have some, a better look at what the enacted budget may look like as we get some information coming from the legislature and the Senate this week. But based 
based on current numbers that we have from the executive budget proposal, we are looking at a no local tax increase passed along to our community this year. It's also year three of three, three out of three of the foundation aid phase in um, that the governor had uh, said that she was going to do a couple years ago and has followed through. It's made uh, budgeting wonderful for the past couple years. So as we look to the future and it's a little bit um, less anticipated, it will change as we look to the future. Um, we are the biggest piece of the revenue budget is our the final piece of our foundation aid phase and the district is looking at a nine and a half million dollar increase to our foundation aid um, through the executive aid runs our other aids remained generally the same they are um, reimbursement aids so it's based on what we spend and those kind of stay pretty uh, similar year over year the government Yes, and they are supposed to adopt a budget by April 1st, but uh, we'll see. And we hope so. It makes our lives a little easier over here. Um, the governor has also promised to continue funding to schools. And another um, interesting piece, which was a part of the governor's proposed budget, was a high-impact tutoring set-aside. So what that means is they um, look at our foundation aid, and they take a chunk of our foundation aid, and they set it aside for a specific purpose. And this specific purpose is high-impact tutoring. Um, it is targeting students in grades 3 through 8 in ELA and math. Um, our district set aside is $911,000 um, taken from our foundation aid to set aside as a part of this high impact tutoring. Um, so that is, from what I'm hearing, it, her proposal is just for one year, um, but that is an interesting and a unique piece of this year's revenue budget because we can only use that money for that purpose. Talk about our finance committee several times, most important one is but again, it's, we get more money, yay, but the government's not as how we have to use it. So instead of the local you know, board being able to designate money where we want it, you know, New York State is deciding, much as they do with names of schools now, they decide how we spend our money. Um, so we'll see how that lasts. Well, we don't know if they're going to do that. Have you heard? Correct. Yeah, like I've, heard, I've heard rumbling um, of not happening, but you were in a recent meeting. Yesterday and today through small cities, I met with um, Senator Mayer, who's the chair of education committee for the uh, Senate, and uh, also Mr. Benedetto from the Assembly, mm -hmm. and Tedesco, who is a uh, uh, majority leader, minority leader. And they all said, no way. We're not passing this. No way. That's not going to happen. And it was from all three. So hopefully, that will carry. Hopefully, the she doesn't have more information in it. That's good to hear because that's, that's what I had heard too, but I didn't get it from which, you know. Yeah, I think no, that's a pretty good source. Yeah, the, it was the three of them. They were all addressed on that issue and they yeah. all said no. So. so, if we look at last year's revenue budget compared to this year's revenue budget, 
um, our tax related our tax related items which includes our star our tax and our pilots um, has generally stayed the same there is a slight increase due to some pilot changes um, and the money that we receive from that our state aid is the area that we see the largest increase and that is uh, primarily related to our foundation aid phase in um, last year we had 1.4 million built in for reserves and fund balance at this time we have not built any in as we are able to um, look at our current expenditures to our current revenue and we're able to balance a budget without relying on those additional sources so we will leave those where they are and um, bring them back in when the district, you know, when we're, our budget starts to tip the other way. Um, and then in the miscellaneous, um, we see a large increase and a lot of that is related to an increase in our interest revenue. Um, if you remember last year, we created some new reserves, so that money is generating interest in and in bringing in a significant amount um, increase um, for our revenue portion. So we are looking at a um, just over 101 million, almost 101.5 million dollars for um, anticipated revenue for the 2023-2024 budget. Any questions or comments on revenue? Because the next slide is for expenditures. Not that we can't go back, but while we're here. All right, we will move to the proposed expenditure side of the budget. Um, we are going to look at it from a capital, a program, and an administra and the administrative portion of the budget. Um, we will talk in at, for each um, topic in detail in the next couple of slides, but as you can see, we saw an, a significant increase um, in our proposed expenditures in the general fund budget to uh, match our increased revenue. So looking, we're going to start with capital, and the biggest, um, if you go back looking at last year to this year, the biggest portion increase in our capital budget is we are proposing a $2 million transfer from the general fund to the capital fund to support some work that needs to be done around the district. The first is our capital outlay. We are looking at replacing the scoreboard at Strider Fields. We are looking at potentially replacing the sign out front from, to an electronic sign. Um, and replacing the external lights with LED lighting here at the, on the exterior of the building as well as adding um, a couple more lights around the building. Um, I have heard that it's pretty dark um, in the, you know, as the sun goes down when we're dropping students, picking them up and attending events. So replacing those lights and adding some extras will help um, with that for over here at Jefferson Middle School. The capital outlay is um, we receive aid on that in the following year. So that um, is what we are choosing to do for this year's capital outlay. Um, the next item that we're proposing within this transfer to capital is over at Purcell Middle School. Um, if you recall, we have been chipping away at replacing the heats there. And Carl, I'll let you chime in as I botch this. Um, <laughs> um, at, we are go ahead. <laughs> <clears throat> so the triangular por portion of the building down on uh, uh, Baker and uh, Hazeltine is all in slab heat. It's 60 years old, and the just the, the friction from the water moving through the pipes has has those pipes very thin and almost Swiss cheese like, 
and we have had six or seven rooms that have failed. Um, to date, we have we have installed, we have fixed the six rooms, and we have also added the the new heat piping to every one of the rooms. So, the 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 supply and return pipes are in each room, and we're ready to uh, to hang the unit ventilators in each one of those rooms. So, I recommend that we we always keep moving with that. There's no swing space at Purcell, and uh, we don't know when the next one is going to happen, so we should So generally, I mean, yes, it has failed at this point, but congratulations and thank you to the craftspeople from how many years ago? 60 years ago? 50 oh, years ago? it's all black pipe. It's all threaded black pipe, which yeah. is honestly a, a feat in itself. Yeah, it's, yeah. that's amazing that the, the heat and all of that function for so long inside the concrete slab, and now we're shifting to a more modern heating system up in the ceilings where unit ventilators can... Uh, do both heat and cool eventually, but do heat at this point. But I just wanted to acknowledge the yes. those folks who did that work all that time ago. When the capital project, we're replacing them with the unit ventilators that have uh, four pipes in them. <clears throat> so we've got the heat heating of supply and return, and we also have the cold water side for cooling. And when we get to the capital project, that's a, that's going to be coming to Purcell. They will ha put a chiller up on the roof, and then we will cool the building using the same same loop in the same units. None of this work will be replaced or get in the way of any of our new and upcoming capital project. Everything that we're doing from piping to the uh, pump drives and all of this stuff will be reused in the capital project. Uh, none of it will be replaced. So it's a good project. Uh, and like Carl said, we have replaced that in about six classrooms, six to seven classrooms. There are about 20 classrooms left to replace. Um, so as we are looking to do that work uh, we are also proposing um, doing some work we have to pull out the lining or the yeah the lining at the track there recinder it do some drainage work there um, so since we're doing the interior work we are eligible to receive aid on the exterior work so we figured we might as well loop in the track while we're we're there doing that work inside um, and then the last piece is over at Washington Middle School we are planning on relocating our nurse's office and we need to renovate a space to move her um, so that we can establish the school-based health center there over there at Washington Middle School to serve our students. And similar to Purcell, while we're doing interior work there, um, there is some work that needs to be done at the track there as well. So um, since we're doing that interior work, we can do the work on the track and receive aid on it. So the work at Purcell and Washington Middle School, we will submit um, to, to SED for approval on those and we will receive aid on all of that work over 15 years. Um, so we are proposing to do it. General breakdowns um, within that $2 million is about, and these are high estimates we hope because everything is still pretty um, wild as far as bidding goes. Um, an estimated 400000 at Jefferson to replace the scoreboard, the sign, and the exterior lighting. Um, about 125000 over at Washington to do the nurse's office renovation in the track. And then the balance, which is about one point four seven five at Purcell, hopefully to replace the heating in those classrooms and renovate the track um, outside. So that's what we're looking at as far as what that $2 million transfer from the general fund to the capital fund um, will do to make to do some upgrades around the district at the three middle schools. So, any questions about any of those spaces specifically? Okay. 
Additionally, as a part of the capital budget, there is um, funding available in there to continue with our equipment replacement, as well as additional funding in maintenance to address other um, areas district-wide that may need um, some attention, as well as some money earmarked to replace um, to for our anything that ha may have red raiders on it if um, that needs to be replaced. So we have money built into the maintenance budget um, to support those changes, as well as address other work. Any questions about capital? All right, moving along to programming. All right, so looking at the program budget, um, if, you go, if you went back to the initial slide, we saw a significant increase in our program budget as well. Um, some of those changes are reflected in um, accounting for salaries that are currently in our ARPA funds that we have um, created a, a number of positions last year that we started in the ARPA funds that will move back to the general fund, as well as looking to support the some additions of some new positions um, district-wide. The first being for um, student support centers, and this, the first model is um, a look at how it would look at the high school and at our middle schools. So it would be a space dedicated for an ELA teacher, a math teacher, and two, two paraprofessionals um, to provide support for students who needed um, help in both ELA and math. Um, if you look at the third, the, at the third bullet point, um, that is the same concept over at the elementary school where you would be looking at two, um, potentially two full-time reading teachers to support literacy at our elementary schools. So that is how that model would look like at the elementary schools. Um, with the, the proposal of all of these, they would, oh, did you have a question? the student support centers that would be four support centers one at each building so there'd be one at the high school one at each middle school and then a model at the elementary schools well, the elementary, just counting the middle schools and the high school that would be four ela teachers yes right? not just you know, because it says one here correct four correct. and the reading support things at the elementary school would be 10 additional right. teachers so these are all additional positions. Yes. Correct. Um, in addition to the proposal of an additional elementary position at Fletcher, um, in both second grade and fourth grade classes, we're seeing a bubble of students go through. So we are looking at 40% um, more students than average class size in both of those, um, in both second and fourth grade. So we are proposing an additional elementary teacher to break up um, some of those class sizes and allow students to have smaller class sizes over at Fletcher. Um, so from a programming standpoint, we the additional positions, we're looking at a, um, an increase of 1.8 million to support all of those positions. Um, they would initially start within the ARPA funds as that's an appropriate and perfect use of those funds um, with the long-term vision being the funding that we would receive from the Maystow case in the future would fund those positions as well. So we don't get that. <laughs> <laughs> you know me, I'm always yes. like, they're not giving it to us. 
but also like, to offset like I don't know that we should depend on that, right? So like if we don't get that or we don't get what we think we should get on that, we have enough. Yeah, that's played out in that five. We have year. enough for a little while yes. to fund that, right? Yeah. That's yeah. what I yeah. And within this budget there is um about two and a half to three million of one-time expenditures to support that transfer to capital to do the work over at the three middle schools with some of it which would stay within that capital outlay but there's also the money built in for Raider the potential Raider right. replacement so that's also a one-time expenditure that after we were to replace that that could support salaries in the future as well so just back to the, the FTEs we're building in here so it was 14 14 for the Student support centers. So there's two reading teachers at each elementary school, so there's ten. That's ten. Three, and three, then four. it is one math teacher, one ELA teacher, and two paraprofessionals at each of the middle schools and the high school. Okay, so that's four. Four at each middle school. So it's and four right. at the high school. Right. right? So, so so if you just if you just took ELA teachers, it's four new ELA teachers. Yep. If you just took math teachers, four new math teachers. Yep. Paraprofessionals, it's eight new paraprofessionals. And then the reading teachers is another ten. Twenty six new math teachers. Yeah. <coughs> That's when can we start to recruit for these jobs? I know. Yeah. Yeah. Renee's on it. To fill. Renee's on it. We'll we'll open up anticipated as soon as we start moving toward a more comprehensive look at what money is really going to come to us else for the program budget okay. and the third and final piece is the administrative budget and it's primarily a rollover budget of the previous year's budget but with the um, addition of uh, proposing an assistant principal over at Fletcher Elementary School I apologize this is not the correct slideshow I swear I <laughs> <laughs> that um, but as you can see Fletcher Elementary has our I didn't include the high school here but it is our um, second highest student population at all of our buildings enrollment um, for the current snapshot is about 445 students over at Fletcher Elementary with Purcell, Ele Purcell Middle School being the the next highest anticipated enrollment um, of for all of our buildings so being as large as they are um, I know that they could that the principal there could use some assistance through an assistant principal um, over at Fletcher to help with the day-to-day -day operations and everything that it takes to run a school so we are proposing an assistant principal position over at Fletcher Elementary <coughs> as a part of next year's budget I think that's great. I mean, I'm very much in favor of it. Is one of the TOSAs at Fletcher? Yeah, we have a TOSA at, at every elementary school. So we have five TOSAs, and they're all at the elementary school. I think we have five. Are there five? Yes. Thank you. So we will still have the TOSA in addition to the assistant principal. We We'll have to wait and see how that shakes out. At this point, that's in the budget. Anything else for the administrative budget? No? Okay. All right. So I did, for all the board members, I did print this out. It's uh, a little fuzzy up there. So um, as we look at this, uh, it, I will say that it is meant to be alarming. Um, there, This is a five-year forecast beginning with this current year's budget and looking out to the 2027-2028 budget. 
um, with our current expenditures and um, the so starting with the revenue budget it is this would be if it was completely flat from a revenue standpoint moving towards the future this takes into account a zero percent tax increase as well as a zero percent increase in our state aid um, when we first started a couple I think it was last year in um, the five-year New York State's five-year look ahead for their financial situation they were anticipating um, a surplus but I know that that's changed to be a deficit in New York's future um, so as their future remains um, unclear following the COVID-19 pandemic and everything else that uh, happens at the state level we want to be prepared as best we can to manage any challenges that may come our way from that um, I always reference back to the GEA years and we want to be prepared for that should that um, happen again for the district so as you look at this our revenue is completely flat from 2023 2024 moving ahead into the future if you move to the expenditure side um, of the budget that if you look into the 2023-2024 budget, I removed those one-time expenditures to kind of give a better um, look at what our rollover budget looks like. So we roll that budget over um, with increases, uh, with contractual salary increases estimated in there, as well as estimates related to health insurance and our retirement contributions and what that will look like for the district. So. Um, with all those very general assumptions in mind, um, as we look towards, what is it, the 2025-2026 school year, we remain um, in the positive. And as we look to 26-27, we start to see where the expenditures start, start to outpace our um, anticipated revenue. And like I said, this is meant to alarm you. In the revenue side of things, there is no appropriated fund balance built in there and there's no reserve fund contributions built in there. So this is meant to show how important those things are um, as we look to the future and the uncertainty of what state aid could look like as we move forward um, so that we um, continue to review our reserves and our appropriated fund balance so that we can fill in those gaps as we look to future budgets. So with that in mind, we will look at our reserve fund overview. I have provided some information from year end in June of 2019 and where we stand today, which really is a reflection of where we ended in June of 2022 to show um, the work that we have all put in to um, managing our reserve funds and making them a priority so that as we look to the future and state aid you know, could potentially um, become unfavorable we have built up our reserve funds and have been mindful and talked about them and funded them to appropriate levels um, so that we can fill in those gaps and continue to support our budget um, with the hope that we wouldn't have to cut programming um, into the future so that we can maintain what we've built over these ca these past few years so um, as of this year, we have, if I can remember correctly, we have over $21 million total um, broken out into our reserve funds. And where we ended in 2019, we only had about $9 million. So we've really put in a lot of work and have been incredibly mindful about what that looks like and how important those reserve funds are. 
Um, as we are talking about reserve funds, one of the things that we talked about at both the Capital Project Committee and at the Budget and Finance Committee is proposing to our community the addition of a capital improvement reserve fund. Um, a, we have we established one um, previously and we still have a balance from our 2018 one. Um, but as I was working with our financial advisor, um, he gave me a bit of a scare when we were talking about um, how much money we would need to transfer from our capital reserve to support about $30 million worth of capital work. And because interest rates have changed so much, what the state would pay us out in an assumed interest rate versus what we would pay um, on borrowing has also kind of tipped. Um, it's really important that we continue to fund capital improvement reserves so that should that stay out of balance like that, we are able to continue to do much needed work that needs to be done around the district, maintain our facilities, um, and continue to put projects out to our community without asking them to contribute towards the tax levy to support that work. So I would like to propose that we um, put it out to our voters this year to um, approve the establishment of a capital improvement reserve of 2023 um, with an up to amount of $5 million which we would um, fund that as we would have fund balance available up to that $5 million threshold. We've talked about in budget finance, reserve funds are the things that smooth out the, the lows and the highs so that we don't have to worry about cutting program and staff like the kinds of things that we're building. As funding drops off or becomes unavailable, we can dip into reserves for those specific purposes and not have to cut those programs. And goes without saying, it also enables us to protect our taxpayer, taxpayers and our tax base by not having to increase taxes to maintain program. We can uh, maintain our program without any increase in tax. And what's also been mentioned is, you talk about things you don't necessarily have a handle on, state funding is one of them. But with the recent increase over the last six or eight months in interest rates, that's affected uh, <coughs> borrowing tremendously. I mean, you think about your savings account, you've got uh, $10,000 in it, and you're going, wow, that's great. Think about borrowing uh, $10 million and what that's going to do with a couple percent more in interest rates as far as borrowing costs. So we've got to factor that in also. Um, so that's why sometimes people might say it's kind of a general overview, but you don't know what's lying out there in the weeds, so you have to budget for it and um, be prepared for it. So that's all. To the last slide of questions, comments, feedback, concerns. I think it's positive that we're looking at increasing that many positions, and they're, they're all student-related positions. So it's 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 for program it's for program positions that we're that we're looking at creating. So um, I just hope we can fill all. Sure. That's an area that. Small cities has asked to have a cost um, evaluation going. This is towards the Maisto grant or lawsuit. We hope it's a grant. <laughs> um, but uh, we are short huge amounts of teachers in AIS for math and for English uh, reading. I mean, it was some 40 some for reading and 50 some for math. and. Uh, social workers and librarians and 
Um, so when you look at that, it's good to see that we're moving in the direction of trying to fill some of those positions and those gaps. Um, I had to laugh at the, that tutoring concept. I mean, we're supposed to be 10 or less in an AIS class, according to that. We're more like 15, and now she's saying we need individual tutoring. I mean, let's get down to the basics of where we should be. So maybe that would help us. All right, there's your preliminary look. Thanks, Brittany. Thank you. Thank you. That was a presentation of the Jamestown Public Schools budget. And again, you're listening to Community Matters. Funding received under the 340B program by local health care centers like the Chautauqua Center and Evergreen Health is being threatened by a carve-out by New York State. TCC CEO Mike Pease explains. We have the Chautauqua Center CEO Michael Pease on the line with us to talk about an issue that has been going on for some federally qualified health care centers and other facilities in western New York. So thanks for taking time to be with us today. Oh, no problem. So... This is something I've heard of called 340B, and, you know, for someone who had worked in government at one point, you know, we're used to hearing all different kind of acronyms and shortcut names for things. What is this 340B that is so concerning to TCC right now and other facilities? So the 340B program is, so the easiest way to explain it is it's uh, it's a pharmacy program that offers that where we have the ability to offer medications to uh, patients uh, at a greatly discounted price. And there is built into that program the difference between that reduced price and what the manufacturing price generally is. There's a savings um, where the organization is able to take that money and reinvest it into programs that support the patients that it serves. So it does two things. It offers uh, significantly reduced prices for medications uh, to patients. And the second thing is it offers a, a, another form of income for organizations like uh, us, uh, as well as other health centers, hospital systems, Ryan White uh, clinics. Um, we are, most of us participate in this program and we reinvest those, those dollars that we programs like care coordination, case management, transportation, uh, translation services, things that we don't traditionally get reimbursed for so we can offer the patient a better uh, experience. And my understanding is that this funding, is this federal funding or is this funding that comes through the state? So it's twofold. It There is a... It's, it's a federal program, but New York State, for example, is currently trying to, I'll use the words they use, they're trying to carve out the Medicaid patients, basically saying they want to take the savings that the health centers and hospitals and others get currently and put it into their coffers and decide what to do with those savings rather than allowing the organizations who are providing the care to use those savings in a, in a way that we're much better positioned to um, determine what our patients need. So uh, it, it's, so like I said, it's a, it's a federal program, but the state is trying to, attempting to redesign the way in which those savings 
are distributed so they would go back to the state rather than the providers. Mm-hmm. Is this something that is under legislation that the program's sunsetting, or is this something that was voted on by the state legislature to carve, do this carve-out? Uh, two years ago, it was in Governor Cuomo's proposed budget was... Um, uh, geez, I'm trying to think of the right word. Mm-hmm. It, it was uh, kind of furloughed, if you will, for two years, um, or, or paused for two years while there was hopefully a solution that was um, th- uh, determined that would be beneficial to all organizations. Uh, in short, there was not a lot of work done um, by uh, the state to figure out different alternative ways to uh, make sure the program wasn't being and we're now back at the table with this being in the current proposal from Governor Hochul, although there is growing, um, des- uh, there a growing desire from our state legislators and senators to come up with an alternative way of, of making sure that the program is being implemented in full transparency and in the right way so that organizations like us can continue to use those resources to provide needed services in our communities. Are you able to talk to, like, if, say, that this program sunsets or or ends, uh, I'm thinking it must end at the end of the fiscal year, maybe by in April, um, what is the financial impact to the Chautauqua Center? So just for TCC, the financial impact is the year. Um, oh, so I, it's, it, for some reason that the audio cut you off, so it didn't say, I didn't hear you say what happened. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's, mm-hmm. it's over two million. So it's a significant loss for us, um, and support. You know, again, we use that money to support our care coordination program, our case management services, translation translators that we have on staff. Um, a lot of different things. We, we transport uh, medications to the patient's homes. That isn't reimbursable in normal ways, so we use that money to pay for the home delivery of those medications. So we use those, the money in a lot of ways to make life easier for our patients and the community. Um, so those programs, while we certainly would not want to get rid of those programs, if that funding goes away, we're going to have to reassess what it is that we'll be able to do long-term with programs that are not reimbursable. How, and I don't know if you can speak to other organizations and how they would be affected. I know, I've heard that Evergreen Health Services is another um, health organization in our community that would be affected if this carve-out goes through. Yes. Uh, So, like I said, So they're a Ryan White Health Center, but they're also a federally qualified health center in their Buffalo area now and, and soon to be a uh, uh, look, look-alike clinic in the Jamestown area. But, yes, they will they'll lose significant. In fact, because of the type of patients they serve, which tend to be folks, you know, with HIV issues or hep C or, or they serve general community as well, but they, they tend to be more of a, uh, a niche type of organization, which is critical for the, the services that we need for patients in, all throughout Western New York. 
their their loss is significantly more than what we would experience. And um, again, in speaking with their executive, their CEO, um, we know that they would have to consider what programs they could continue to run as well. And uh, in short, I'll just say, you know, cutting cutting this these resources out, just like any business, you get a significant loss, you have to reassess what you're able to do. Um, if those, you know, if services go away, patients' outcomes tend to get worse. So, uh, and the one other thing I'll say is, wow, it certainly would affect, you know, Brooks, UPMC, they all have their own pharmacy programs. It's the same 340B funding pot that uh, they, they run their programs through. And again, I'm not super familiar with what they use their, you know, their, their program income for, so I don't want to speak for them or anyone else, but I can't imagine they wouldn't have to reassess their programs if that money goes away. Mm-hmm. What are, is, is there something that you as a TCC and other organizations are doing right now to try to combat this carve-out from happening? So we've been working with uh, the Save the Safety Net Coalition of New York State, um, in addition to Evergreen, actually, has taken the lead for Western New York. And uh, <clears throat> Mike Lee, specifically from Evergreen Health Services, has really done a lot of good work with our elected officials and other organizations and trying to educate them on the importance of these resources. And, in fact, they came up with, in conjunction with other folks, we came up with an alternative uh, proposal that has been shared with the both the senators and legislators, or yeah, representatives in New York State on how we could continue to get the the benefit of the program as health centers, but also how we could how we would ensure that the program's uh, guidelines are being met. In, from the standpoint of reinvesting those dollars in programs that are supportive and things like that. So um, there is a way that this could benefit both the state, the, the, the community, which is the most important, as well as us as providers um, of those services. So we think there's a really good alternative that, again, actually has been a uh, Presented, and I believe it's in, on the on the legislature side that that's been presented, um, and we're waiting for that to be presented on the Senate side as well. So we're hopeful that it will get enough traction. Because to your point, you are correct. As of April first, that program would stop uh, the way that it's running currently, and we just we can't go a day without the resources that we need to continue to provide the services that we do. Mm-hmm. Mike, is there anything else that you'd like to add or, or share with us about this program and, and your efforts around it? No, I just say that just like any other program, you know, when it's being used in the right way, which health centers are required to do because of the statutory limitations we have on how we can use those resources and um, <clears throat> the guidance that we receive from our federal as well as state organizations, then it's a benefit to the community. And just, just like any other organization, there's a program where there could be some misuse, then 
I feel like the target should be, you know, on organizations, regardless of who they are, uh, that are misusing a program. So our ask consistently has been, and I'll say we've gotten support from from Andy Goodell and George Barolo in this case. So we are very happy with our elected officials from the support that we've received and their understanding that we need these dollars to continue to come to us, um, that we, we feel strongly that there has to be an alternative outcome so that we can continue to provide the needed services that we do. Well, Mike Peace, thank you so much for taking the time to explain all this program to us. Yes, I, and I appreciate the opportunity to share the information with you guys. And uh, again, we're looking forward to a positive outcome and uh, have a nice day. You've been listening to Community Matters. The second annual Chautauqua Book Read is underway, and we welcome representatives from the Jamestown YWCA to tell us more. The second annual Chautauqua Book Read is coming up right now, and the book that's being focused on is called Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation by Linda Villarosa. This is a book that has been nominated by the New York Public Library as a finalist for the 36th Annual Helen Bernstein Book Award for Excellence in Journalism, and it's also a finalist for Columbia Journalism School and Neiman Foundation for Journalism and Harvard University's Lucas Prize Project. So we do have two people here to talk about this annual book read. We have YWCA Jamestown's Executive Director, Amanda Giesing, and we have the Chautauqua Book Read Project Coordinator, Danica Olson. So welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. So as I mentioned, this is the second annual book read. So uh, Amanda, how how did the first book read go last year? Uh, last year we read the book um, cast, and it was a um, phenomenal event. We had over 200 individuals sign up to pledge to either read the book um, and or attend the in-person meetings. Uh, we had in-person book discussions throughout the county. And um, unfortunately, of course, as COVID often seemed to do last year, it kind of reared its head at the time that the discussions were going on. So um, we had several people who were not able to attend the in-person discussions as planned because of COVID. Um, but we still had quite a great turnout at each of our sites, um, which is really what promoted us to do this again this year. Um, the, we had so much positive feedback from the community. They enjoyed the opportunity to collectively read a book and then have those discussions. And so um, we got together with the Chicago Institution again this year and said, um, let's do it again. Mm-hmm. What was something you learned from, from doing this book read last year? Like, what were you f- hearing from the participants in terms of the ac- that experience? Yeah, they really appreciated the opportunity to just have um, honest dialogue with their peers around um, racism and systemic racism and the opportunity to just collectively process the information and um, do a little deeper dive um, and really just have that conversation um, with trained facilitators who were able to help facilitate that conversation. And it was, um, a, it, it wasn't a negative conversation. It wasn't um, accusatory. It was really just about understanding our history and then focusing on what we can do as a community um, to support individuals in the future. Mm-hmm. So now looking at this year, why was this book chosen? Well, as you mentioned, um, Linda Villarosa's Under the Skin has a lot of accolades, a lot of um, 
awards behind it. And you always know that awards follow good literature. So that's one big aspect. But what's nice is that it illuminates some really large and historic systemic issues. And then Linda Villarosa provides specific examples. She actually, you know, talks about a woman named Danielle who lived near a toxic waste site and developed brain cancer. So that's the environmental racism side of things. She talks about um, how black women are disadvantaged in our health system in terms of maternity rates and infant mortality rates. Um, I'm sorry, mortality rates and infant mortality rates. Um, And she gives specific examples of birthing trauma, um, not only from a doula's perspective, but also from um, patients' perspectives. So she provides real-life experiences. As we know, some people need that personalized view to believe that something is true and not just a conspiracy that's made up. So she provides that concrete evidence as well as the personal touch. I mean, there is reference after reference. The whole book is about 213 pages, and then there's another like 50 pages of references if you want to continue your anti-racism education journey. Mm-hmm. And this is a book that I think she was writing it before the pandemic started, right? Correct. It, it stemmed from a larger article that she had published. She had worked, worked for Essence Magazine um, as a as a writer, um, at, mostly on opinion pieces, but then it stemmed from an article that she wrote. I apologize. I don't remember the specific name of the article. <laughs> so, and so the funny thing, I guess I wouldn't say not funny in a ha-ha way, is that when I was looking into the book and kind of the background of how it came to be that, uh, so she, a lot of her data she was using was from, like I said, before the pandemic. And it sounds like what she since has learned that the pandemic just has exacerbated what she's already been learning within the black community, but also seeing how we're seeing other communities being affected as well. Correct. Um, I mean, there is an intersectionality of this. Um, it, with, you know, the height of George, George Floyd was right at the height of the pandemic. Um, and so though racism has gotten a spotlight, our medical field has suffered. A lot of our um, our healthcare workers are already exhausted. And when you add on the lens of weathering, um, which is a term that's used in this book, that's just that overall effect of racism on black bodies, the fact that you know they have higher risk for certain health issues, they have more fatigue. So it has exacerbated, has been exacerbated by the pandemic. And so a lot of our great healthcare workers who are members of the black community have left the field. Um, so that's one angle that has, has suffered. I guess one other angle that um, just came out, if I could find my reference really quick. So um, in June of 2022, the American Nurses Association issued an apology for purposely denying membership to black nurses from 1916 to 1964. So I feel like that was a pivotal moment because a major organization admitted admitted systemic racism. So now all of a sudden that will allow, I feel like, Um, barriers to come down and maybe more research to become available. You know, our black community has been claiming um, prejudice and discrimination for centuries. And now all of a sudden, I feel like more organizations are going to be held accountable. And so a lot of things that had been swept under the rug pre-pandemic 
I feel like they're going to start coming um, out into the light. Mm-hmm. And with a lot, there's a lot of information you're talking about here. And the great thing is that the reason we're talking about it is that people can have an opportunity to read this book and talk about them with others. So this is what the, you know, the whole purpose is. Right now, we're kind of in the sign-up part of and reading part of this uh, book read, right? Yes, yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So right now, um, you can go online to um, ywca.com and go to our events page or our um, CHQ book read page to learn more about the the event and register for one of the book read sessions. We have multiple sessions, both day and evening at multiple locations throughout um, the community that you're able to elect to participate in. Um, And then you would just between now and April, because the, the community conversations are in April, is just your opportunity to read the book. Um, and the book is really going to just help um, readers understand the relationship between race and medicine um, and really help make that um, connection between our history and the systems of oppression and racism um, and how that affects health. So um, it really will be a great um, experience, uh, an eye-opening book for sure. And then the conversations, I think, um, are just going to be phenomenal to be able to just have that conversation with our peers about those things. And uh, our library system does have this book? Correct. And if you also are struggling with um, getting the book, we had a generous donation from Zonta Jamestown, and we have nine books available at our office. So please reach out to uh, YWCA Jamestown if you're in need of a book. Um, But the libraries have them on hold as well. And um, if you're willing to buy it, support our local bookstores and um, go get that book because... um, the, you know, it, it supports the author, it supports the bookstores, and it's really one of those books that if you can buy it, buy it because you're going to want to go back to it. Mm-hmm. And for listeners that you know, are wondering about the facilitation, I will disclose I am a facilitator for the Chautauqua Book Read. I was as well for last year. And one of the availabilities, if people are not comfortable uh, doing one of the facilitations in person, I am doing one of the Zoom facilitations. So, uh, so if you want to sign up and read the book and uh, be part of that, you'll just have to make sure you get the right day because i'm not telling you what day i'll be i'll be doing it but no i from my personal experience you know having read the book last year and i must admit i have not started the book this year yet uh i did feel like i learned a lot last year uh there are things that you think you know and then you and this is why we read is that you learn more and i think this kind of gets into the point of it it's like why why are we doing this you know why why is this important for us or why is this something that your organization is leading. Yeah, the YWCA Jamestown is dedicated to um, eliminating racism and empowering women um, and promoting peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. And uh, this book hits at that intersection of our entire mission. And um, this is an opportunity for us um, to help people understand why YWCA USA has really been at the forefront of getting the community to understand and declare that racism is a threat to our public health and is a public health crisis. So that racism is a public health crisis and that is something that YWCA USA um, and many YWs um, throughout the nation are working with their local governments to get that declaration made. And these discussions are really gonna give participants the opportunity to discuss um, how that structural racism plays a large role in determining the conditions in which people are born um, and those outcomes from that racism and and where they were born. So um, together as a community, we'll be able to understand how these factors affect people's access to quality housing and education and and, and ultimately health. So it's it's really um, a great opportunity for our community to just have open and honest dialogue um, and learn just a little bit. 
And then this isn't, once we do this facilitations in April, that's not the end of this. If all goes well, you're looking at doing something that this summer with Chautauqua Institution as well. Correct, so the author will be coming to Chautauqua Institution. Um, Danica, do you have? Yes, it's Thursday, <laughs> Thursday, July 20th for the 3.30 lecture. And this uh, event is free to Chautauqua County residents. Um, if you go to chq.org, all of the tickets are available there. I believe you're meant to make reservations by July 11th, but um, they are accepting walk-ins when you get there too. You just have to flash your Chautauqua County ID so that they know you are a resident. Um, but that will allow you a free all-day gate pass to be able to go to that 10 a.m. lecture um, or 10.45 lecture as well as the 2 p.m. lecture and then of course to see Linda Villarosa at 3.30. Mm -hmm. and, and I would just add that there's some um, other amazing things kind of in the works right now um, with a lot of the women's organizations within Chautauqua County. We're looking at possibly um, offering a lunch opportunity. Uh, typically this day is YWCA day for those that support YWCA where we go to um, the Chautauqua and collectively as a group um, eat lunch together so that we can have even more deeper conversation. Um, and right now we're working with the Women and Girls Coalition and a few other women's clubs um, and groups to look at having a larger women's uh, lunch in that day as well. Wow. And also if I remember right, Parking can be free too, but you have to register by a certain date. Yes, I believe that's the July 11th date. <clears throat> Which, you know, for anybody who is, uh, has the opportunity to go to Chautauqua Day, I think last year, unfortunately, with uh, losing the speaker, I think they still had the day for people who want to come from Chautauqua County, but that's a nice opportunity for people who maybe, maybe look at and say, well, I'm not sure if I want to go, you know, the costs associated, and this is a way, I guess, to make it more accessible for sure. I have to say that on a personal note, the YWCA Chautauqua County Day last year was a pivotal moment for me. I met a lot of really amazing people. I heard great discussions. Um, I made some really lasting friendships that um, are some of the most supportive groups um, that I'm currently in. So um, come, make new friends, learn a thing or two. <laughs> So to just reiterate again, uh, where can people sign up for, for the Chautauqua Book Read? So if you go to ywcajamestown.com forward slash CHQ Book Read, you can register for one of the 13 book discussions that are being held from April 17th through April 28th throughout the county. As Amanda mentioned, there are eight of them in person and four of them are, uh, I'm sorry, nine of them in person, we added one, and four of them via Zoom. Um, so you're encouraged to go ahead and sign up or at least check out the website. Um, we do have over 20 partnering community organizations and sponsors. So learn about the different groups that are committed to anti-racism and in our county. And then the last thing is invite a friend. Great. Anything either of you would like to add? Oh, thank you for having us here in this opportunity to um, spread awareness about um, not only the wonderful book, but um, systemic racism and um, the effects on health. Okay. Amanda and Danica from the Jamestown YWCA, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for tuning into Community Matters this week. I'm Julia Cisla Hanley for WRFA.